Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, give you another opportunity to wake up now that we lost an hour of sleep. Everybody looks a little spacey this morning. I keep All the clocks in here are at 8.15, so now we know what it would be like to have a really early service. Another reason why not to have one of those uh, every Easter, you know, people have those sunrise services. I'm just so glad I've never been at a church that wanted me to do a sunrise service. Okay, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to gather together, to fellowship around your word, to be refreshed by the study of your word. We're reminded that the scripture says that it is in your light that we see light, and it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for those who are overseas, those who are serving in Iraq, both in military and civilian capacities, those who are uh, serving in the armed forces around the country, we pray that you would watch over them. We pray for our, na- our nation's leaders, especially our president, those who are uh, in charge of strategy in the military. We pray that you would give them wisdom and that they would be able to get the proper intelligence. We continue to pray for the security of this nation in light of continuing threats made against us, that you would protect us and watch over us. Father, we pray today that as we gather together to study your word, that we would be uh, receptive to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, that we might respond to what what we learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning on 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most extensive development in the New Testament on the doctrine of resurrection. It is a doctrinal chapter. But it begins with a reminder to the Corinthians about the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them when he first came. And we have spent several weeks just on the first verse because it is such an issue today in terms of just defining what the gospel is. So we saw in our study that the first verse, which is translated, Now uh, I make known to you, brethren, as if it's a present translating as a present tense, I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Now, the reason I have gone over this and over this and over this is not only do we have problems today understanding what the gospel is, but we have to understand this, this first verb, I make known to you. If that is a, it's a present tense verb, but it, if, if it is understood as a, as an epistolary aorist, which means that Paul is writing at this particular time, and so he is using in the sense that I am, as I'm writing right now, I am explaining what the gospel is to you. Or if it's understood in just sort of a continuative, durative sense of right now I make known to you or I'm explaining to you the gospel, either sense very similar, then what you end up with in verses 3 and 4 is what some people will say is the gospel itself. 
Now, if we look down at verses 3 and 4, we read, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And the question becomes, is that gospel content? Do you have to believe in the resurrection in order to be saved? Now, this is really important because there's a lot of folks who may not even get to the resurrection in a gospel presentation. You may be explaining the gospel to some child in prep school. You may be explaining it to your child. You may have been a child when you heard the gospel. Or you may simply have an opportunity to explain to someone that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And if you trust in Christ, you'll be saved. Is that all you need to know to be saved? Or do you also have to believe in the resurrection? This is important. This verb should be understood, now I make known, it's a present active indicative, but it should be understood as a historical present. And a historical present means that it is a, while it is written in a present tense form, it is translated as a past tense. And so a corrected translation would read, now I made known to you the brethren, made known to you brethren the gospel which I proclaim to you which also you received and which also you stand. Now, let's just look at this. And one of the reasons I go into the Greek a lot is because you have to understand why you translate it a certain way. And contextually, uh, understanding the made known, which is the Greek verb norizo, G-N-O-R-I-Z-O, norizo, now I made known to you, is because all of your other verbs, except all the other verbs in this verse are in the past tense. I make, see, Paul isn't saying now I am explaining to you the gospel which I preached, the gospel which I proclaim to you. He is saying I made known to you the gospel which I proclaim to you. He's not now explaining something he already taught. He is, he is simply referring to what he made known, what he explained, what he proclaimed to them in the past. And now he's going to develop some implications of that in terms of of the resurrection. And that's why in verse 3 he will get into the resurrection, which we probably won't get to until next Sunday, which is timely, and that next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But what Paul is talking about here is the implications of what they believed. Now that is what we will develop when we get into the last part of this verse and verse 2. He's, he's developing the implications of this, and when he goes back to the gospel itself or to the message, see, when even in verse 3 he says, for I delivered to you. See, again, that's a past tense. So every other verb all through here that talks about his communication is a past tense verb other than that very first verb, which is a present tense. So it should be understood as a historical present and translated as a past tense. Verses 3 and 4, rather than giving the content of the gospel, are giving the basis for the gospel. And that is the work that Christ did on the cross, which included his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a package deal. It's a package concept. The the death paid the penalty for the sins. His burial showed that it was a real death. His resurrection showed that he conquers death, and it has evidentiary value for his deity as well as demonstrating that God the Father approved and recognized and accepted the work that he had accomplished on the cross. So all that, all of that is by way of simple introduction. But what Paul is going to do, as Paul does, and, and I get impressed with this again and again, is that Paul is going to deal with an extremely practical aspect, which comes up in the end of this verse and end of verse 2. But before he gets there, or, or in order, before he really develops it, he's going to go through a lengthy doctrinal exposition. He's going to go through the, the whole doctrine of resurrection, why it's important, why it's significant, and that if we don't have a physical bodily resurrection of Christ, we might as well give this whole thing up called Christianity and go live like the pagans do. Because without resurrection, there is no victory over death. There is no gospel. Jesus Christ could not have paid uh, for the death of the, of the cross, who was just another uh, person crucified as a criminal in Judea. 
So Paul begins, Now I made known to you, brethren, and last time we looked at the episode in Acts 18 where Paul went to Corinth. And there he uh, taught the gospel. Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaimed to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. Now I made it a point last time when we looked at this this. Uh, second relative clause, which also you received, that that word there, which is paralambano in the Greek, is not a word talking about their reception of the gospel in terms of salvation. It's not a, it's not a synonym, it's not a, a parallel to believing the gospel individually. He is talking here about the fact that as a congregation, they accepted the true gospel. And they continue to hold on to the true gospel. That's the next phrase. They continue to hold on to the true gospel. They haven't departed from it like the Galatians did. And last time we looked at what happened in Galatia where they gave up the gospel of grace in favor of a gospel of legalism. They were deceived by the Judaizers that came in. And I went back and showed that there is a, there is a parallel in the vocabulary used in Galatians 1.11 and the vocabulary used in 1 Corinthians 15.1 and 2, showing once again that what Paul is talking about is that as a, as a church, they understood the gospel, just like Preston City Bible Church has a, an accurate understanding of the gospel. They've been taught the gospel, and they hold on to that, and they maintain it. He's not talking about individual reception here in terms of faith alone and Christ alone and getting saved at the point of justification. He's talking about the fact that that as a corporate body of believers, they receive the truth, and then he concludes by saying, in which also you stand. And this is the perfect active indicative, second person plural, of the Greek verb histemi, which means to stand. It can also have other meanings, but that's the translation, best translation for this passage, in which you stand. Now, we need to ask a question here, and that question has to do with, is this positional standing or is this experiential standing? And we know from when we began our study in in Corinthians back in uh, chapter 1, that the whole issue of positional truth was a foundational issue in Corinth. They needed to understand that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Now, the, reason, the way you discover this is you, you do, some, uh, do some word studies, and you take a look at this word and how it's used elsewhere. But before we get there, we need to understand why I'm asking this question. Is this a positional standing, or is it an experiential standing? Now, what do I mean by positional standing? When we trust Christ as our Savior, there are two realities. On the left, we have the eternal realities. That's positional truth. On the right, we have temporal realities. That's experiential truth. So on the left side, we're dealing with eternal doctrine, things that we get at salvation that are ours forever, that you can't lose, that's the basis for our Christian life. God gives us everything we need to live the Christian life at the instant of salvation. And so at that instant, we become children of light. That's why I have a white circle. We are enter into the kingdom of light, and we are baptized by God the Holy Spirit, which means we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 4, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is foundational. That's where Paul's going to go with this. That is so foundational to understanding the Christian life. That becomes the basis for understanding who we are as members of the royal family of God and what the uh, Christian way of life is for the member of the royal family of God. 
We have all of our positional realities. We're reconciled to God. We're redeemed uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we are purchased, freed from the slave market of sin. We're regenerated, meaning we have new life in Christ. We have a, a human spirit, and we now have the ability to have a relationship with God and understand the Word of God. We're adopted into the royal family of God. We have a new identity. We are now royal aristocracy in the in the in uh, God's family we are a new creation in Christ we're completely new creatures we still have a sin nature though and that's a problem but we have been freed from the power of that sin nature so that we can live a new life in Christ we're sealed by the holy spirit which is a down payment of our future salvation future glorification and we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who makes our body a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Now that is all in terms of who and what we are and the package deal that we've got. And that is the more you think about what that means, the more it changes how you understand your role, your purpose, your destiny in human history and in eternity. But then we have our temporal realities because we still have a sin nature. We are initially filled by the Holy Spirit, and we walk by the Holy Spirit, but it's not long before we sin, and we're out of fellowship. We walk in darkness. We walk according to the flesh, the Scripture says. We walk according to the sin nature. And, of course, the way to recover is 1 John 1, 9, which simply means to identify to God our sins, and then we are forgiven. That's the difference between positional and experiential truth. That's the difference between what we have in Christ and living on the basis of what we have in Christ. Now, it's real easy to think that when we read a passage like this and just look at it, that Paul is saying, I made known to you the gospel in which you stand. Well, that, wouldn't that be our standing in Christ? Well, we have to look and see how Paul uses the word a histemi in the in New Testament passages related to uh, Christian life. A parallel passage is Romans five two. Romans five two we read through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now again we have the same verbiage that we have over in First Corinthians. 15, and the phrase is this grace in which we stand, and the verb for stand is histemi, and there it's a perfect uh, active indicative, first person uh, plural. Now in, let me back up a minute. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, we have a perfect active indicative. Let me explain the significance of that. Perfect active indicative indicates something that a perfect tense indicates something that happened in the past and you're emphasizing ongoing results. Now they're standing in and they made a decision when they accepted the gospel, they received the gospel, they received the truth, and that was a decision they made initially, and so they're still standing with that decision in the gospel. That's the significance of the perfect tense. In contrast to the Galatians who heard the gospel and then departed the gospel and, and into a heretical gospel, they quit standing in it. It wasn't an ongoing thing. So that's the significance of the, of the perfect tense. Now, in Romans 5.2, it's this grace in which also we stand. And again, we could ask the question, well, gosh, is this positional or is this experiential? Verse 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, it's a past action, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also uh, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now, is this grace in which we stand, is that positional truth or is that experiential truth? Positional truth would say, well, we're standing in grace, whether we're in fellowship or we're out of fellowship. Experiential truth would be saying we are while we're in fellowship, we're operational on the basis of grace. Now that makes more sense. 
It is talking about sanctification, and we can back that up with a couple of other passages. Remember, whenever you have a passage where you have something that's unclear, you you clarify it by comparing Scripture with other Scripture. And I've recently, in studying hermeneutics, I was not taught this terminology when I was in seminary, but there is a technical term for this. I always heard of it as comparing Scripture with Scripture, but there's another term called the analogy of faith. I like comparing Scripture with Scripture. I think it just makes more sense. So Paul makes the same point to the Roman believers. He says this, this grace in which we stand, we're still choosing to stand in it, and it has to do with, with ongoing uh, spiritual growth. Now we get that from looking at other passages. For example, Ephesians 6.14. 6.14 is in the context of the armor passage, the armor of God that we're supposed to put on in, in terms of spiritual uh, warfare. Ephesians 6.14 reads, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is not talking about positional truth. It is a command. It is an aorist active imperative, and an aorist imperative means that this is to be a priority. In Ephesians 6.14, it's the same verb, histemi, but the imperative mood indicates that, once again, you can be in a position where you're not standing. You stand firm, therefore, what? Having girded your loins with truth. That is having, in, in the analogy with the armor, what the Roman soldier would do is when he went into battle, he would take his, his garments, his robe, and he would, he would pull them up and tie them into his belt so that it, his robe didn't get in the way, and he would be, have his uh, arms and legs free in, in combat. And so the issue here is that the truth is that that belt that hang, everything hangs together on, and, and we're focusing on the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and this is experiential righteousness here in terms of application of Scripture. So we stand firm, therefore, and standing in Ephesians 6.14 has to do with being in fellowship, and it's another synonym for walking by, by application of Scripture. 1 Peter 5.12, we have another imperative. Through Silvanus, that's Silas. Silvanus was the Latin uh, form of the name Silas. Through Silas, this is the same Silas that was in jail in in, uh, Philippi with Paul. Through Silas, our faithful brother, uh, for so I regard him. Silas was the amanuensis. An amanuensis is like a a secretary, the one who took the the dictation from Peter when he wrote the letter. Through Silas, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now see, there we have an aorist active imperative, second person plural command, to stand firm in what? In grace. See, that's the same idea that Paul had back in Romans 5, 2, that this grace in which we stand. If it's an imperative and it's presented as a command, then that means you have a choice. You can either stand in grace or not stand in grace. If you're a believer, if it's positional truth, you don't have an option. You're going to stand in grace whether you're out of fellowship or in fellowship. You're going to stand in grace whether you're walking by the Spirit or are not walking by the Spirit. But if it's a mandate, then that indicates that this is something that applies to your ongoing spiritual life, which is to stand on the basis of, of, of grace in 1 Peter 5.12. So standing has to do with your position. It would be comparable to living the Christian life under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It, it's synonymous or analogous to abiding in Christ, to staying in fellowship. All of these terms are just different ways of expressing the same reality. And then... Uh, Colossians 4.12 begins to tie it together in a slightly different way. There, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect. And so the word for stand is, again, histemi, and here it's an aorist passive subjunctive, and an aorist subjunctive is used 
in a clause of this nature with the Hina in order to show purpose. The purpose for his prayers. He is praying diligently that for the purpose that you may stand what perfect. And there is our Greek verb, our Greek noun, telios. And telios is the word for maturity, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So the idea here is, once again, spiritual growth, that you may stand mature. So when Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15:1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, aorist tense, referring to what happened in the past when as a corporate body they accepted the true gospel as opposed to a false gospel, in which also you stand, perfect tense, you continue to stand, you haven't shaken, you may have all kinds of problems, you may have problems with, with as a congregation with carnality, with arrogance, with all kinds of problems, but you're still operating on the basis of that, of grace. Now, they were an immature congregation, they were a carnal congregation, but what we're talking about here is that they're standing on the basis of grace orientation. This is the uh, this is the concept here. Standing here, therefore, on the basis of usage of histemi in both the uh, purpose clauses of Col- Col- Colossians 4.12 and the mandates of 1 Peter 5.12 and Ephesians 6.14, standing is talking about post-salvation truth for the Christian life. Now, what we see here is that Paul is using an instrumental dative here, by means of which, that by means of the gospel, you stand. Okay, what, allow, what is it that allows them, and what is it in relationship to the gospel that allows them to continue to stand? This is where we get into uh, basic understanding of of the gospel here. Ephesians six fifteen. Going back to the uh, spiritual warfare passage and the armor passage of Ephesians four. Remember, it was in Ephesians six fourteen that Paul commanded, "Stand firm." And then in 6.15, they stand firm, having girded your loins, having put on the breastplate, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So there's a relationship there between standing and the gospel. What are you standing on? You're standing on an understanding of the gospel. Well, what do you get from that? You get your understanding of grace. That is one of the reasons why it is good for believers to hear the gospel over and over and over again and to think about it, not in terms of an evangelistic message, but in terms of being able to appreciate and understand fully what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and understanding what grace is because grace orientation is the foundation for everything else in the Christian life. You start, we start off learning our basic stress busters which have to do with with, uh, confession and walking by means of the Spirit and faith rest drill. But then the next phase is grace orientation. You You understand grace orientation by understanding the gospel, by taking it apart. The gospel is the beginning of grace orientation, realizing that there's nothing that you and I can do to merit the favor of God. There's nothing that we've ever done to merit the favor of God. In fact, God continues to love us. He continues to uh, deal with us. He continues to discipline us when we're out of fellowship. But no matter how obnoxious we become as his children, God still deals with us as grace. And that becomes the, the pattern for the whole spiritual life, because for your whole life and my life, we're going to deal with people who are obnoxious. We're going to interact with systems that are that have completely broken down. And the more that we live in a uh, culture that is opting for pagan modes of thought, 
the more we're going to have problems. You try to get anything done with any business, you're going to have to deal with all kinds of bureaucracy. You're going to have to deal with people who are just punching a clock to get a paycheck. And all you're going to get is frustration. You deal with any kind of political system, especially in this year. We pin our, so often we have that temptation to pin our hopes on one candidate or another that something will make a difference. And then we're disappointed by their failures. And it is a systemic problem. And so we'll be tested through systems. You'll be tested through people. You'll be tested through all kinds of different situations and circumstances. And if you can't deal with it in grace, then you're going to implode as a believer. You're going to fall apart and you're going to end up reacting to every situation, every circumstance, and every uh, person that comes along who can't think their way out of a, a wet paper bag. So it starts with the gospel. That's what we stand on is the gospel. And this, again, is experiential. If you're out of fellowship, you can't operate on the armor that Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 6. So the gospel of peace becomes that foundation on which we operate when we're in, when we're in fellowship. So Paul says, and just to summarize Verse 1, Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaim to you, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the irreducible minimum for salvation. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus, Jesus, You're lost, and Jesus will save you. I don't think it has to be any, any more detailed than that in terms of an irreducible minimum. Think about the thief on the cross. He didn't have a lot of content. He didn't know about the hypostatic union. He understood that Jesus was the the promised Messiah and Savior, and by trusting in him, he would uh, enter into the kingdom. That's all that's needed. It's just a basic, simple trust in Christ. Now, you can add to that and explain it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but that's so simple that a three-, four-, five-year-old child can understand it. You don't have to believe in the Trinity. Now, if you approach the gospel and say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection, I don't believe in the Trinity, I don't believe in this, and then you, then it's a different story because you're basically now believing in a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. But you don't have to understand and believe in a systematic theology before you can be saved. You simply trust in Christ as the one who is able to deliver you from your sins. Now we come to verse 2. Paul says, this is a gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. Present reality from a past action. Then in verse 2 he says, by which also you are saved. This is our verb sozo. It's a present passive indicative, second person plural, meaning to deliver, to save, or to heal. So let's look at it grammatically. By which also you are saved. Present tense. This is the continuous action of the present tense. It's ongoing action. He's not talking about their past justification. He's talking about their present salvation. Now, we have to realize that sozo is used in three senses. There are three stages of salvation. In phase one, phase two, and phase three, and phase one is really justification. This is when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us, and when God the Father sees that perfect righteousness, he declares us to be just. That is, we also speak of that as being saved, but more technically, that's justification. The second sense in which we use saved has to do with the spiritual life. The third sense has to do with future salvation and glorification. So at phase one, we refer to that as positional sanctification, but we've already said that's not what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. It's talking about phase two, progressive sanctification, our ongoing spiritual life. And then phase three, ultimate sanctification. Now, another way that we express this is that at, at Phase one justification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. We are saved from the penalty of sin. 
and by saved from the penalty of sin, what we are saying is at that instant, you, become, you, are, you, be, you are regenerated and you are given new life. See, part, the penalty for sin was what? Spiritual death. That's what happened when we're not talking about freed from the penalty of sin in terms of, of paying for your sins in terms of freedom from the lake of fire. We're talking about freedom from the penalty of sin, meaning that at that instant you are regenerate. But in phase two, the spiritual life, we are freed or saved from the power of sin. It's ongoing salvation. You're being saved every day. Every day that you walk by means of the Holy Spirit, every day that you abide in Christ, every day that you're growing spiritually and applying the Word, you are being saved. Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who was the uh, former president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, now he's co-founder with Wayne House of Oregon Theological Seminary, heard him speak on this many times. He likes to shock his audience. He says, you know, I was saved yesterday, and I got saved today, and I'm going to get saved tomorrow. I just love getting saved all day long. I'll get saved over and over again. And see, that sort of rubs us wrong because we're so used to using that verbiage to refer to justification. And we only get saved once in that sense. But in phase two salvation, we get saved over and over and over again. It's an ongoing process. And then there is phase three salvation where we're saved from the presence of the presence of the sin nature. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 too. So Paul says that it is by this gospel that he proclaimed to them several years earlier You are now being saved. Now, we have to understand that as phase two salvation. If you don't, you're going to have real problems with the rest of the verse. And this is a mistake that a number of lordship gospel people get into here. And You may have somebody go to this verse and say, look, it's this gospel by which you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. In other words, if you don't hold fast, you weren't really saved. See, that's lordship salvation. It is a view called perseverance of the saints. If you don't persevere, you weren't saved. That's how you know you're saved. And you'll hear this little truism. They usually pull it out of James 2 that, that while the faith that saves is, is alone, while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. While we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. What they mean by that is that real saving faith is always accompanied by works. It's always accompanied by perseverance. And if you don't persevere, then you weren't really saved. Well, that's not what 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 is talking about. Paul says, by which, that is the gospel that you believed, also you are being saved. The gospel is not just a recognition that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, but it's the foundation for the whole spiritual life. When we start unpacking the meaning of the gospel and realize that Jesus Christ paid for every sin, past, present, and future, and that the sins that I sin now are not going to cause spiritual death or not cause me to lose salvation, not cause me to... to um, forfeit what I've gained, then we begin to realize what grace is. And then that has implications for ongoing spiritual life. By which also you are being saved. Phase two salvation, spiritual growth. And now let's understand what he means here. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Well, the first thing we have to do is understand the nature of the Conditional clause, if. It is a first-class condition, so you can write a little one there, superscript one there in your Bible, so you can remember it. If you hold fast, remember the Greek has uh, four different ways to express a condition. A condition is the idea, if you do something, then this will happen. In English, we just express it with an if, but in Greek, there's, there's four different grammatical ways to express it. Each has a different nuance. And a first-class condition means if, and we assume the condition to be true. So Paul is saying, by which also you are being saved, if, and we'll assume it to be true, that you are holding fast the word which I preach to you. 
So it's a first-class condition. He's assuming that they're going to hold fast to the to the gospel, and that will be a basis for their spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Then he says, if you hold fast, and this is the Greek verb kateko, which is a compound of the preposition kata plus the verb echo. It's a present active indicative, present tense ongoing action. If you continue to hold fast to the word, it, the verb kateko means to hold strongly to certain beliefs, to convictions, uh, to retain, to hold on to, or to continue to keep Keep the gospel straight. So what Paul is saying, by which, by this gospel also, you continue to be saved. If you continue to hold on to, and then he uses the word logos, the word. That is the message that I proclaim to you. He's talking about the content of the gospel here. That if you continue to have a true understanding of the gospel, then this is foundational to your ongoing spiritual advance. But if you depart from the gospel into a legalistic gospel into a lordship salvation gospel, into a gospel where you can lose your salvation, into a gospel where you have to do something to gain your salvation, you're aborting grace, and you're not going to get anywhere in the spiritual life. See, fellowship isn't just a matter of experience, it's a matter of doctrine. We saw that in our study of 1 John, that if you don't have right doctrine, you can't have fellowship any more than if you have uh, sin in your life. So 1 Corinthians 15, 2, by which also by which gospel also you are continuing to be saved, spiritual growth, if, and you are, holding fast, continuing to hold on to the word, that is the gospel message, which I proclaim to you. And there we have, uh, once again, our verb, uangelizo, which means to proclaim, it's translated preach, but it means to proclaim, to announce, to uh, uh, give the gospel to hold fast the, the message which I proclaim to you, and then we get into what looks like a really interesting phrase, unless you believed in vain. Now, the verb there is pistuo. It's the aorist active indicative second person plural, and pistuo here is a constitutive aorist, which means that the action is viewed as a whole, simply stating the action as a, as a past action, but without reference to its beginning, its end, its progress, or result, or the manner of the action. You believed in the past. You believed in the gospel, unless you believed in vain. Now, you can see how lordship people would take this. That you, I preached the gospel to you, and you could have believed. It could have been a false faith. It could have been a pseudo-faith. You see, this, you're always going to have people come up and say, well, there's two different kinds of faith in Jesus. There's a genuine saving faith, and there's a non-saving faith. And we've gone through this many times, and one of the passages they'll usually go to for this is in John chapter 2, after Jesus has turned the water into wine, he goes into Jerusalem, and he's there for, for Passover, and he heals many people, and there's many he performs many miracles, and many people were saved, justified, but then the text says, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them. And so you'll get some self-righteous, legalistic, lordship type who will say, well, if they were really saved, Jesus would have trusted himself to them. Well, you know, there's just a lot of believers that I won't trust. You get the same silly, naive attitude with people who say, uh, well, I want to find a good Christian who will work on my car or a good Christian doctor. Well, you know, I don't really care what their eternal status is. I want the best doctor. I want the best mechanic. If somebody's going to work on my car, if somebody's going to be cutting me open, you know, it'd be nice if they were saved. But I would rather have have the best surgeon available that was going to go to hell than some Christian who really wasn't all that good. So we get this idea that if they're a Christian, then you can trust them. Well, you haven't really been stabbed in the back until you've been stabbed in the back by another believer. Trust me, there's a whole level of testing there that, that you may not want to go through. 
So it's just this naive attitude that, well, if they had been saved, Jesus would have trusted himself. No, they were saved, but they didn't have any content yet. They didn't have any spiritual growth yet. They were still operating. I mean, the Jews in John 2 were still operating on the idea that Jesus is a Messiah with a political agenda, and they wanted him wanted to put him forth as a, a political uh, adversary for Rome. So that's why Jesus isn't trusting himself to them. They have the wrong agenda. They're saved, but that doesn't mean their agenda's right. I mean, some of you don't believe that you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. I know that's hard, but I don't want to shock you this morning, but there are people who are truly saved who are Democrats, socialists. So what Paul is saying here is not that you can have a non-saving faith, But what he is saying is that this faith is to no purpose. It is the Greek adverb, A-K, modifying the noun, that this is a faith that doesn't achieve its purpose. Well, what is the purpose? The purpose is to grow to spiritual maturity. But you can have a, if you depart from the gospel, you're not going to grow anymore. That was a whole problem in in Galatians. As you've departed from the gospel, in Galatians 3.3, Paul says that, that having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be matured in the flesh? In other words, the gospel of grace is no longer operational in your life, so instead of growing to maturity, you're going to abort the process and not grow or advance in the spiritual life. Now, in this chart, the upper, the upper half, which is green, represents our the area where we're growing, green for growth, and the lower area is gray is where we're not growing. That's the area of carnality. So spiritual growth is the top section. Carnality is the lower section. And the goal in Christian life is to grow. It's not just to be saved and to have an eternal destiny in heaven. It's to grow to spiritual maturity. And as we grow to spiritual maturity, we need to learn to spend more time in fellowship, abiding in Christ, and less time in carnality. But when you're a new believer, you're going to spend a lot of time in carnality. That's just the nature of being a spiritual infant, a spiritual baby. You're not disciplined yet. You don't know anything. You're not, uh, you don't have enough doctrine to apply yet. But as you grow and as you advance, you will spend more and more time in fellowship, more and more time growing and advancing until you get to the point where you have spiritual maturity, but even then you'll spend some time out of fellowship. So the goal is to be in fellowship, abiding in Christ, and that gives us forward momentum. But when we're out of fellowship, that's called walking according to the flesh. We're out of fellowship and in reverse momentum. Now what Paul is saying in in 1 Corinthians 15.2, when he says, it by which you are being saved, if you're holding on to the message, then you haven't believed in, in vain. In other words, believed to no purpose. is the same thing that James is saying in James 1. Now, I always like to go to this because people always want to juxtapose uh, Paul's theology with James' theology, and it's the same thing. So turn over to James, and let's just summarize this section in James 1, 19 through 20. James is sandwiched in there between Hebrews and 1 Peter. It's been a while since we studied James. Now, James gives the outline of the whole epistle in James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, the, the outline of the book is that he's going to talk about what it means to be quick to hear. That means your priority is to hear the Word of God. And that is the subject from 121 down through uh, 226. Chapter 3 deals with sins of the tongue, being slow to speak. And chapter 4 down through chapter 5, verse 6, deals with the implications of mental attitude sins. But the overall theme is maturity, or is growing to maturity and endurance, uh, hupomones. So he's going to give practical principles on how to endure the testings in life. And the first key is that you have to be quick to hear. So he talks about that and uh, in the next few verses. 
So in verse 19, he says, My beloved brethren, an indication he's talking to believers, not to unbelievers. He calls them brethren many times, and that is a sign that they are fellow members in the royal family of God. Be, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? Because the the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of God here is not talking about positional righteousness. It's not talking about imputed righteousness, because you have that at the instant of salvation. What he's talking about here is experiential righteousness. That's which comes through spiritual growth and spiritual advance. It is capacity righteousness, also called capacity righteousness, because it gives us the capacity to be able to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Why? Because when you get angry, you're out of fellowship. And instead of producing uh, gold, silver, and precious stones, instead of producing divine good, you're producing human good. You're operating on the sin nature. You're producing sin. Uh, primarily personal anger is personal sin, but then it leads to uh, human good, which is uh, wood, hay, and straw. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It cannot produce plus R. Anger is personal sin and the opposite of plus R. Uh, and it's the opposite of experiential righteousness. So how do you do this? Verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Well, I skipped a verse. Verse, it's not up there. Verse 21. Verse 21 is a key verse. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. I always love the old King James said the superfluity of naughtiness. Whatever that means. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, the main verb there is the verb decomai which means to receive. And decamai here is an aorist, passive, imperative. Now, an aorist imperative means that it's a priority, priority mandate. Passive, it really has an active meaning. It's a deponent verb is indicated by the O-M-A-I Ending. Decomai. Okay. The aorist mandate in the verse, okay, here you have your aorist imperative, is preceded by what looks like a command in English, putting aside. But in the Greek, this is an aorist participle. Now, without going into all of the detailed exegesis here, you have an interesting construction in Greek where if you have an aorist imperative that is preceded by an aorist participle, then the aorist participle is describing the prerequisite action necessary to fulfill the command. In other words, before you can receive the word, you have to do something else. You can't take in the Word unless first you put aside filthiness and that which is uh, the, the excess, which wickedness is. That's a corrected translation. I don't want to take the time to exegete it in detail. And it, by means of humility, which is grace orientation and action, receive the implanted Word, which is able to what? Save your souls. Now, he's not talking about justification salvation there because, as I stated, they're already believers. This is indicated back in verse 19 and other passages like verse 2 and many others where he refers to them as brothers. But if you look back to verse 18, James says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth, you and me, first person plural. What Paul is saying in verse 18 is the operation of regeneration of his will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. 
So they're regenerate based on verse 18. They're regenerate based on the use of beloved brethren. He's writing to them as believers who already have justification salvation. And now he's telling them that you have to receive the word in a certain way if it's going to have sanctification salvation. In other words, he's talking about the same thing Paul is over in 1 Corinthians 15 too. That you have to go on being saved, being saved, and being saved, and you do it by receiving the word. Now hold your place in James and just turn over a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Therefore, laying aside, that's the same word, apotithemi, that we have for laying aside or putting aside over in James 1, uh, 22, or James 1, 21. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. That word for desire is, again, an aorist imperative, preceded by an aorist participle. It's the same pattern. In other words, before you can take in the milk of the word, you have to get rid of something. Before you can receive the word in humility, in verse 21 of James, you have to first put off, which has to do with taking off a garment, sin. That's what we call confession. That's how you do it. It's just described in a different way here, that before you can receive the implanted word, you have to deal with the sin in your life. Before you can desire the sincere milk of the word, you have to uh, get rid of the sin in your life. That's confession. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have to take in the word because that's what's able to save your soul. And the word for word there is logos, the same thing that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15.2. It's this message that is uh, instrumental in bringing about salvation, uh, sanctification. That's what Jesus said is when he prayed to the Father in John 17, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It's the word of God which begins with the primary message, which is the gospel, that's foundational for spiritual growth. So Paul then says, I mean, James says in verse 22, but demonstrate or prove yourselves doers of the word. And the idea of doing there isn't the idea of Christian service. It's the idea of application. The idea of application. And it is the word genomai, become doers, poieo, meaning to do, but become a doer, that is, an applier of the word. Don't just collect everything in your doctrinal notebook, but put it into practice. When you hit various tests in your life, you have to put it into practice. That's what James is talking about back in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So how do we handle it? Well, we apply the word. So demonstrator become, Paul says, become, I mean, James says, become appliers of the word and not merely hearers in self-delusion. Verse 23, for if anyone is a, a hearer of the word and not an applier, then he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Now, I can tell by looking at most of you this morning, that despite the fact that we lost an hour of sleep last night, you look like you looked in the mirror and combed your hair and put on, ladies, put on some makeup. I don't see any men being put on any makeup this morning. That's a good thing. And uh, that means that you understand this principle, that when you look at yourself in the mirror, then you recognize a few things need to be done. Now, one thing I've noticed as I get older, my beard's gone white, and my eyes have gone bad. And I have a wife whose eyes have gone bad. Now, this is really rough. In the last six months, I've noticed about three times on a Sunday morning, I've gotten here to church and didn't shave in the morning. I, don't look, I look in the mirror, and I don't see that I haven't shaved. I mean, those little white hairs don't show up anymore. My wife doesn't see it, so she's not there to say, hey, you know, you, you didn't shave this morning. She can't tell her eyes are going bad. You know, getting old is rough. Well, we're supposed to look in the mirror, pay attention to what we see, and do something with it. Apply some principles. Brush our hair, comb our hair, put on makeup, whatever the case may be, shave. So what James is using is the analogy that if you don't look at your 
if you're if you don't apply what you see in the word then you're like somebody who looks at themselves in the mirror and then you go away verse 24 immediately forgetting what kind of person he was you you just look at the mirror and go oh that's nice but you don't do anything about it in contrast james says the one who looks intently at the perfect law that's the per- person who's a student of the word the law of liberty and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that is, one who is applying the word under the filling of the Holy Spirit, this man will be blessed in what he does. Why? Because he is growing spiritually. He's able to handle the trials and tests of life and advance. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he's going to start to unpack that message in verse 3. In 15.2 he says, By which, that is the gospel, you are being saved... If, condition, first class, I'm going to assume that you are, but it also indicates that they may not, but I'm going to assume that you are holding fast to that message which I proclaim to you, which is the gospel, unless you believed to no purpose. That is, if you don't hold on to it and you don't apply the word, then your your original faith is to no purpose. Not that you're not saved, but it is not going to be beneficial for you in your spiritual growth and your spiritual advance. So what he is saying now is that everything following this, this whole discussion and development of the doctrine of resurrection, isn't just something you need to know related to salvation, but it is important for sanctification and spiritual growth because of what it sets in terms of precedent. So we'll come back and begin to look at that next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to uh, be challenged by these things, to realize that we have been saved for a purpose and that that initial saving faith has an ongoing purpose in terms of sanctification faith and spiritual growth and that you have saved us for a purpose, and according to Ephesians 2.10, and that is to produce uh, divine good and to grow and mature spiritually that we might glorify you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of participating in, in some sort of ritual. It is simply belief that Jesus Christ died for your sins, died as a substitute for you, so that by believing in him, trusting in him alone, you can have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.